Good morning. You are listening to Green Left Radio brought to you by 3CR 855 on your dial. My name is Chloe. I'm here in the studio with Jacob. Good morning, Jacob. Good morning, Chloe, and good morning to our listeners. 3CR and Green Left would like to acknowledge that this show is being broadcast on the land of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. They never ceded sovereignty and the colonization of their land continues to this day. That struggle for First Nation sovereignty is deeply connected with the struggles against racism and border imperialism that we all live with today. We are in solidarity with First Nations people and their struggle for justice. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Okay, and to, to give a bit of a rundown of the program, we actually have quite a good, quite a big mm. program actually lined up. We're going to be covering quite a lot of different political topics actually. So the first major interview we're going to be having on the program, we'll be speaking to Peter Boyle, who is actually one of the organisers for the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2023 conference. And in Green Left, um, he has been writing um, about the ideas of one of our keynote speakers, Kohei Saito, who is going to be speaking on this on the idea of degrowth communism at 2 p.m. on the Saturday, July 1st of of the Eco Socialism Conference? So we're going to be kind of having a bit of a a, a, a discussion about um, the implications of some of these ideas and the lessons that it offers for left wing activists and socialists. Then we'll be speaking to Angela Carr, um, who is an activist from the Save Geelong West Library campaign. Probably some of our listeners are aware that the Geelong City Council is actually making a number of cuts to essential services such as, um, such as libraries and we're going to be, we're going to be interviewing Angela to give the bit of the update on that. And then we're going to be speaking to Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne who is, which is, um, who are a group of artists and activists fighting for freedom of Iran. And Nazanin has painted a big mural in um, Brunswick that actually I got a good opportunity to visit, um, which, and, you know, for some of our listeners, you can actually visit it, um, at, on Phoenix Street. It's actually just behind Phoenix Street in Brunswick. It's just behind, um, the Woolworths in, in Brunswick. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a, a, it's a tribute to Gina Armani, um, the woman who was, um, killed by morality police and that sparked the massive protests and the women life freedom movement in Iran. So we look forward to hearing more about that from Nazanin at 8.10. Hmm. And maybe to kind of start off, um, start off the program before we get into our first interview, I want to kind of, kind of highlight some of the news headlines that have been, I guess, happening around the world, but I guess starting locally because Green Left Radio is obviously focused on the kind of activist sort of movement. I want to kind of give a bit of a, a few quick updates on on a few things. So one thing that happened last Saturday was um, 
was the um, was the Sydney Road Accessible Tram um, was a protest that was organised by Sydney Road Accessible Tram Stops, and what this involved was basically Sydney Road is not a um, Sydney Road is not um, disability accessible in terms of its public transport, and so a lot of, on the tram line there are no accessible tram stops um, which would allow people with disabilities to be able to access public transport, and currently. Um, the 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 upfield corridor in terms of public transport will be out of, um, the upfield line will be will be out of commission for a number of for probably up to twelve to eighteen months as a result of the level crossing removal. So while that um, those level crossing removals aren't due to be starting until it's between think, eighteen months and two years actually, yeah. but they want to remove eight level crossings in Brunswick. Yeah, um, <clears throat> just because. Um, because um, this is not this. While the work is not due until 2024 or 2025, mm. um, disability campaigners have um, are, are using this in the lead up to saying, "Well, if you if you're gonna if we're gonna remove if we're gonna get the level crossing removals done, then Sydney Road needs accessible tram stops." So. This is going to be an ongoing kind of campaign. And, of course, there's also a lot of other tram stops that are not actually accessible on the Route 19 line, including um, in the Royal um, including in the Royal Parade. So I think, yeah, this I think this is a very kind of important um, campaign that I think, you know, has a lot of in, importance in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of people giving support. So I think, yeah, this is going to um, pass. The rally attracted over 200 people, and I, and I think, you know, it's going to be an ongoing campaign that's going to, that's going to continue. Yeah, we're, we're covering it, uh, it in Green Left, and it was a wonderful rally. Jacob and I were both, both there, and there were people joining the rally from all walks of life, but it was led by disability rights activists, and it was supported by a wide range of organisations, and there were all these, um, you know, people with mobility issues, but also uh, parents with prams and strollers and lots of um, a contingent of wheelchair users and also the Riff Raff Radical Band were there to liven up the crowd. I'm still, I'm still singing along to those protest tunes. Um, it was quite a good rally and we also got lots of media coverage in the mainstream So that and it was very positive and it should alarm the government because I think we should win this campaign because two years is... Definitely enough time to build those accessible tram stops. If the government doesn't does shut the train line without them being installed, we will be taking direct action. So keep stay tuned on this campaign. And um, just another story to um, to alert people of. Um, we've been covering this in Green Left, but the um, the barrack the campaign to save the Barrack Beacon um, estate is um, still ongoing. Currently, one of the key residents who we have interviewed um, for Green Left radio margaret kelly who is very staunch in the the fact that she does um she is refusing um refusing to leave um and yeah so this this um the the campaign to kind of save the barrack beacon estate from demolition because essentially what the government is doing um for listeners who are probably not aware is they're essentially going to be demolishing um demolishing this um this estate um, to redevelop it, and of course, there's not going to be a necessarily a meaningful increase in public housing. And in fact, one of the big concerns that a lot of public housing activists have is essentially what um, this has been the trend, and we've been covering this on Green Left Radio for a number of years. But the trend of state governments in uh, across across Australia is that they 
redevelop a lot of these kind of public housing estates and then they transfer the ownership to community housing providers, which tend to have, you know, higher rents um, and they also tend to be privately owned um, or privately managed, so to speak. The land and the, the houses often tend to be publicly owned by the government. But this is actually a very, uh, a very kind of deliberate attempt um, of, um, of privatisation by self. And I think one last update, I think there has actually been a lot of positive developments in the housing space. I'm not sure if we got a chance to cover this last week because of, um, because we we're doing the Radiophon last week, which is actually, um, people who are listening, you know, the Radiophon's still on and we're still um, wanting to raise as much money as possible to keep community radio and to give you the stories that you don't hear in the, the main, in the corporate press. But, um, the, it has been quite interesting, this, the big, the pressure that, um, that is now put onto labor, on the Labor Party. The Labor Party has now conceded to the idea that they'll spend at least six, um, they'll invest within six, um, six billion dollars indirectly into social housing. Now, there's a lot of inadequacies with this announcement, but this is still uh, a step forward in terms of the sense that they have been forced to do this through the fact that, you know, political parties like the Greens and other um, grassroots forces on the ground, such as public housing campaigners, have have, um, have um, built the pressure onto Labor. And the fact that the nature of the housing crisis is so bad that, you know, essentially um, they're, they're being actually forced to address some of these issues. And, of course, there's a lot of discussion happening right now around rent freezes and and I think you know we got to, we want to be covering a lot of that in um in the in in our program um to cover some of the kind of discussions, especially countering some of the lies that you know rent freezes, uh, which has been a very common opinion in the mainstream corporate press, that rent freezes are actually terrible. And you know what we actually need is we just need to build more houses. Um, and I think we need to, but we'll probably have a discussion about that at some point, kind of exploring some of the the the. Why that's not sufficient. But just, just a bit more about this, uh, Save Barack Beacon campaign. I mean, the Labour government are tearing down public housing, which is really the only type of affordable housing for low wage earners and will just add to this housing crisis. But, you know, we just want to say solidarity to Margaret and anyone who's being forced out of their home. Uh, Margaret was telling us that the public housing site on the at Port Melbourne, which sits on Boonrung land, it was actually one of the first sites where First Nations people were forced to move on. So settlers drained the swamps and cleared the land where people were living and forced them mostly violently to, to and moved them on. So to support this Save Barack Beacon campaign, you can join, uh, you can join the Facebook group, uh, and there's also a donate fund, a crowdfunding, uh, in, uh, to donate some money towards the campaign, um, it's uh, a chuffed. It's called chuffed.org/project/savebrookbeacon, and you can also sign the petition to Parliament. It's e-petition 470.1, um, titled "Stop the Demolition of the Pub- uh, Barack um, Public uh, Barack Beacon Public Housing Estate to Save 88 Million Dollars." All right, so we might get on to our first interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. To 
disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay. We spend money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP, but are on Job Seeker instead. I've got a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are, are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a born old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. To donate, call 039-419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. So I'll play I'll be playing Farhad Bandesh Flee from War Our Rights. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM, and you're just listening to Flee from War, Our Rights by Farhad Bandesh. And just to give a bit of a background to this story, um, to this song, um, this is, this is by Farhad Bandesh, who is, you know, a Kurdish man. Um, and in fact, this, this description that I'm actually reading from, um, that I'm actually reading from, from the, from the YouTube is actually, um, it's actually a bit, obviously a bit out of date, um, because Farhad Bandesh has since been, uh, is since been, a, is since a, a free man, um, who's currently residing in Melbourne right now. And, I guess one of the, the important things about about the importance of this song. This song was actually recorded um, in uh, in detention on Manus Island, and I think probably one of the important things about you know you can kind of see that the message is quite kind of clear in terms of flee from war, our rights, which is. And I think this is a kind of good segue into a kind of contemporary news story, but. You know, n- refugees all around the world, you know, are getting on, are, are getting on boats and, um, and to, to find a better way of life to escape, you know, the war, um, poverty and, and violence that is, um, that is in their, within their kind of home countries. And of course, one of the, one of the kind of interesting sort of exam, one of the sad kind of tragedies that has happened kind of recently is, is the case of this ship, um, shipwreck, um, of refugees, um, that, which happened, which occurred on, on June 14th. And essentially this tragedy where, um, which has happened on June the 14th, um, I think what more we we don't know the full kind of death toll, but man, more than more than four hundred people were aboard this ship, and you know, more at least a, at least over a hundred of the passengers have have um, died. And five hundred people are still feared uh, missing, and at least three hundred or two hundred ninety eight passengers have drow- um, drowned. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the kind of um, very terrible kind of things about this story is the kind of response from the corporate media. And in fact, this is a classic case of what the Australian politicians have often done in response to these tragedies of, of, of refugees um, being on, um, uh, trying to escape and find a better life through, um, um, on boats. Um, they've, bl- they put, they've pinned the blame on people smugglers and, you know, how, why would they get on these, you know, kind of ship, um, these kind of, um, um, these ships and they blame the drowned victims, saying that they're risk-taking youths. Yeah, mm. and you know this is just um, this just pales in comparison to the response that um, the response to the the story about the six billionaires who have um, who have become who have um, who are shra- who have um, become who have been submerged under sea through taking on this risk-taking trip um, to see the Titanic, which involved more than two. Um, thousand and five hundred thousand dollars to see, like the fact that that story, you know, it's been described as a kamikaze mission. Yeah, by a previous passenger. By a previous passenger, yeah. the fact that that story kind of dominates the sort of headlines, whereas the kind of tragedy of these refugees who have drowned at, at sea on the Mediterranean Sea mm. gets very much mentioned. I think just kind of reveals any everything about the kind of inequalities of, you know, what um contemporary sort of cap of capitalist society. And um and yeah and I think there's some there's some good articles on on Green Left about this issue where we have a Pakistan um, activist um who who kind of wrote who wrote a kind of bit of a political analysis of this shipwreck um of the drownings that have um, that have occurred um, within Greece and you know posing the quite kind of question about 
exploring the question of why half of those aboard were were um, were Pakistanis. So I I, re- I recommend kind of looking um, reading that article for a bit of a kind of analysis on on the nature of that. And um, yeah, I, I think um, Chloe, did you sort of have any more comments to kind of make on this story? No. Okay. All right. Well, I might just go play a quick few announcements. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. Kofiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofiya to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we are getting into our first interview for our program today. We're happy to have Peter Boyle joining us, who is a socialist activist and a writer for Green Left. And he is also an organiser for the upcoming Eco-Socialism 2023 conference, A World Beyond Capitalism. And Peter has, um, the reason why we have Peter on the program this week is Peter has written a number of articles for Green Left and Links in the, in the lead up to the Eco-Socialism Conference that appraised the work of Kohei Saito, who is, um, who was one of the keynote speakers, um, for, for the conference. And Kohei Saito, to give a bit of background on him, um, is a, he's an associate professor on, at Tokyo University who has built on the kind of pioneer work on Karl Marx's kind of early ecological insights that have uh, actually been, um, been started by other Marxist scholars such as John Bellamy Foster. And of course, his work is also based on an intensive new research on Marx's previously untranslated and unpublished notebooks. And of course, this research has been recently published in English by Kohei in the form of a book, a book titled Marx and the Anthropocene towards the idea of degrowth communism. Um, so yeah, good morning, Peter. Good morning. Um, so I guess I wanted to, I guess maybe to kind of start off, Peter, I mean, You've re- you recently wrote an article about on Green Left about Kohei Saito's idea, and I guess um, this this article was kind of focused on 
on some of the arguments that I guess the fun, some of the fundamental arguments that Kohei makes and why we, I guess, need to make a break from capitalism and, but why it needs to be a kind of eco-socialist sort of future. Yeah. It's, I think the main argument is that, that he's making, and it's a powerful one, is that capitalism is driven to continually expand in the pursuit of trying to maximize the profits for the, uh, for, for, for the, for the people who own capital, the capitalists. Uh, it, it just has to keep growing mindlessly to achieve this end. And therefore, we've got to reconcile with the fact that even if somehow we managed to do a rapid energy transition to run the whole economy around the world on 100% renewable energy, we still have a massive climate catastrophe. We have other ecological problems such as species extinction, pollution of the atmosphere, land and sea, etc. So the calculation is this, say, if the richest countries in the world, which as most listeners probably know, produce most of the, 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 the carbon footprint, if they continue to grow at the average, which is what the economists, the capitalist economists say is needed for them to make a profit, about 3% a year, by 2050, this will double extraction, it will double overall economic production, consumption, and it will suck up nearly twice as much energy than today. So even with even with uh, renewable energy, because, of course, it does cost energy to implement the transition. Now, of course, the scientists have long been telling us that you know, to have a safe planet, uh, the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere shouldn't exceed 350 parts per million. You know, but we have long gone past 350 ppm. We crossed that in 1990s, now 420 plus. So there are all these disasters which I think continue to threaten us if we have a society or we live in a society which is, you know, a prime for permanent growth at any cost. And that's, that's a good, um, that is a good kind of segue into the next question I want to kind of ask you. And, um, this relates also to another article that you've actually just recently published in Links, which is the International Socialist Journal, um, of Socialist Renewal is, um, you, you, um, one of the fundamental, I guess, challenges that Kohei Saito is actually putting forward in, um, in his work and drawing on kind of Marxist ideas is, I guess, this, this idea of degrowth, um, like the idea that, you know, we actually need to move away from the growth paradigms that underpin a lot, um, that underpin a lot of economic kind of development. And you've kind of gone on about, you know, how capitalism and its development is, you know, is dependent on infinite kind of growth. And I guess in relation to this idea of degrowth, you know, why do you believe it's like very important that left-wing activists, in especially even environmentalists and people who are wanting to fight for a sustainable future, um, have to engage with this idea? Well, I mean, it's important for a number of reasons. I mean, the first one which I've, I've mentioned is that our, our target, our objective cannot be simply uh, more capitalism on renewable energy. And I think, you know, this is a, a dangerously um, seductive idea for some people in the environment movement because they're so frightened and so terrified, you know, of, the, of, of, of what's happening. When people today see, oh, the price of uh, renewable energy is falling, you see some billionaires 
embracing, you know, the, or trying to make money now from the race to, to carry out the energy transition, um, there are some people in the movement who think, oh, wow, it's, it's going to be fine, you know. The, the capitalists will take on renewable energy and we'll be okay. And, and I think what Saito and other uh, degrowth pe- people are saying, this is not true. Now, not only do we need to actually slow down our, uh, the, 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 the economy around the world, uh, but because of, the, of, of, of imperialism, the last few years where a few wealthy countries have dominated and distorted the world's development, the, 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 we, we can't have an even slowing down of the economy. That is, the richest countries have to sharply cut their production uh, while the poorer countries have to be allowed to, to, to catch up. Uh, from, from purely from the point of view of, of, of justice, uh, global justice, but also practically. If you don't have, if you have such extremes of disparity in the world today, you have what we see, war. And that's one of the most environmental destructive things you can imagine. So I think we've got the second point is that we have to reconcile with this issue. So how do, particularly this is a challenge for socialists, because socialists have been fighting for a better life, basically, for, for, for the majority. What happens to our message now? Are we saying that, you you, you know, you can't have a better life? Because you know, we, we participate in so many movements that seek to improve the life of the majority. Are we saying if you have degrowth, your life is going to get worse, particularly in the richest country? Now, here's the interesting thing. The argument, and it's not just an argument in abstract, it is backed by increasing amount of research is that you can actually sharply decrease uh, the, the growth of the economy, GDP, for instance, in a, a developed country, and at the same time improve the lifestyles of the majority of the people, actually improve the lifestyles of everybody. You know, I suppose if you had a, a degrowth society, you would say, well, the super-rich won't be able to go around and have an extravagant lifestyle. But actually, the extravagant lifestyles are not necessarily the good lifestyle. Not for not for the whole of society, definitely, but not even necessarily for them. Um, another powerful example, or a really powerful example of this, is UN studies about uh, health, and they find that uh, there is a sort of a there is not necessarily uh, a connection between having a very high GDP per person and a better health outcome. So if you look at, say, uh, life expectancy, the United States, you know, a country with the biggest GDP per person, actually now has a lower life expectancy than, say, Spain. So it's about five full years lower than Spain, which is actually not as rich a country. And the main reason for this is because Spain has uh, a good uh, universal healthcare system. Even Cuba, which is even much for a country developed a three-year longer life expectancy than the United States over the period of COVID, uh, for the same reason, it has a social, uh, it has a, a, a universal healthcare system. So, if you use this example, and this is not the only one, of course, it could go on more and more. There is a way of actually uh, changing the nature of society. All this energy and human effort that goes into making money for for for, for the capitalists, our profit for the capitalists, if it was diverted to addressing social need and environmental need, 
you could actually have a better life for everybody. And I think one of the start things, you know, which I think was very powerful in the argument that Saito makes, and he's, he's actually not the first one to make this. David Graeber, you know, uh, the late David Graeber, another writer and anthropologist, uh, whose politics would be described, he would have described as anarchists, made this point. Under capitalism today, more and more people are forced to do bullshit jobs. And that's the term that really hit the mark. You're forced to do bullshit jobs. They're precarious bullshit jobs because you're not sure whether you're going you're gonna to have it from one day to the next, sometimes from one hour to the next because of the gig economy. And these bullshit jobs are jobs that destroy the environment they deepen inequality, and they worsen the quality of life and the mental health of people. And, and, and there is a, you know, a sense that it's, where the hell are we going with these bullshit jobs? Now, a lot of these bullshit jobs should actually be ended. And ending those jobs doesn't mean that a whole bunch of people have to get unemployed. We could actually, under an eco-socialist future, rapidly or sharply reduce the necessary hours of work that people have to do in a week. It's very interesting that under capitalism, over the 20th and the 21st century, the average uh, work hours for a week have barely declined, despite all the rapid technolo uh, technological change, all the increases in productivity, it hasn't declined. Because basically, all the gain from that has been appropriated in the form of profit uh, for the capitalists. So we really need a post-capitalist society, an eco-social society that can actually deliver a shorter working week, meaningful jobs, jobs that we, we enjoy doing and are fulfilling and are socially useful and environmentally sustainable. And there's one final argument, I'd say, that, uh, which I found that uh, Saito makes very persuasively. Okay, we can have a vision of what sort of society we'd like, but how do we get there? How do we get there without breaking the dictatorship of capital, the despotism of capital, the term he used? Because until we do that, we cannot gain the freedom to actually implement the choices that we make about how we, we live in society, what we produce collectively, and, um, and, and how we distribute it. Yeah. And um, that gets into the kind of next kind of important kind of question um, in one of your kind of articles in terms of like this question, I guess, of how how we kind of get there and how we fight for a socialist kind of future. Um, there is kind of a challenge that, um, you know, that has been kind of put forward by Kohei, but it's also being reflected in the articles that you've kind of written responding to Kohei's work. But there's this kind of idea that, you know, when it comes to any sort of fo future sort of socialist society, it is not simply enough to kind of appropriate the kind of productive forces that have developed under capitalism, taking kind of all the kind of technology um, and, and so on. And why do you think that, why do you think this is, um, this is the kind of case? Yes, because, and I, actually from the, from the point of view of his work into uh, Marx's theory, you know, uh, this is the central issue. Because what he discovered uh, by uh, actually going through with other scholars unpublished notebooks that Marx made later in life after 1868, where he, he turned his attention increasingly after focusing on society and political economy, he turned his attention more and more into science and into a study of uh, non-European uh, communal societies, pre-capitalist societies. 
and but that didn't get uh, didn't get published, and it was you know it was work he was doing to try and 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 put in into his continuation of his mega work, Capital, which he really only produced one volume of, and the rest of it were put together. And the other two volumes that have been published since his death were put together by Engels on the basis of some of his notes. Well, what Koei did is he went through the whole lot and actually tried to make some sense of, out of it. And he noticed that um, increasingly and uh, that uh, the focus of Marx was on this problem of what is the character of the what he called the forces of production. That is, you know, the technology, the organization of the economy that the capitalists use. And he, he came to the conclusion, a very powerful conclusion, that capitalism actually uh, reshapes these forces of production in a way that totally suits its rule. First of all, in order to maintain its, uh, its exploitation of the majority of people, the workers, but secondly, to pursue this sort of crazy uh, spurts of growth in pursuit of profit, um, you know, making stuff that you know could be even destructive to society, let alone in, you know in, in massive oversupply from time to time, causing reoccurring uh, uh, economic crises. Uh, and and the te- the way it deployed technology was also distorted for these same purposes. So. Technology, you know, by itself, you know, might be, you'd be tempted to think it's just sort of like politically neutral thing, but not in the hands of a tiny minority that wants to make profit at any cost. So he, he developed this, this, this critique of the forces of production, the capitalism, and therefore the idea that, you know, if there was a successful uh, popular uprising, a, a, a people's revolution, a workers' revolution, and the majority then just managed to seize control of the uh, of the economy. Um, it, it couldn't just continue to use it in the same way for the common good, because those forces of production had been so distorted by capitalism uh, to work against the common good and to work against ecological sustainability. And that was this. This is why Saita argues that. The, where Marx was going is what he called degrowth capitalism. Uh, degrowth communism. communism. Sorry, <laughs> degrowth communism. And a sharp break from capitalism, not only on the basis of distribution, but also on the basis of the very nature of what we do, how the economy is structured, and what its objectives are. So that's what he's arguing. You know, personally, my reading is that I think he makes a very strong case uh, that that's where... Marx was heading, uh, that is, towards breaking from the idea that you can simply have a popular revolt, you take over the means of production, so to speak, in, in, in Marx's uh, lingo, and carry on uh, distributing it fairly to everybody. He definitely was going to challenge that, but whether, and I think he would have conceived of it because of his, his, his great interest in, in, in the ecological side, studying metabolic the multiple metabolic risks, that irreparable metabolic risk that capitalism causes, because he was studying that, I think he was coming to an idea that, you know, the future economy would not be one pursuing endless growth, definitely. But would he, would Marx, you know, in the 19th century, been able to 
had the idea and said degrowth, I think that's doubtful because uh, that those problems had not developed to the scale they have today. So, you know, I think the concept of degrowth capitalism is is, is the dramatic concept in a way to force uh, people on the left basically to recognize the importance of making this break with this, this, this crazy pursuit for unending growth. Now, maybe a better term might be steady state uh, economy or, a, you know, a sustainable uh, uh, socialist, eco-socialist society. I think those terms actually uh, might, 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 might also have a lot of value. Uh, but the reason why you know, the dramatic value of the word degrowth now is because the world has been so distorted uh, under imperialism. These rich countries now are just like so, you know, uh, so desperately, we are so desperately need to slash, slash, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the gross rates. Uh, we've got to go and we actually have to degrow the economies in the richest countries in order to have any chance for, for uh, you know, having anything near a safe uh, climate. So, I mean, it has, it has a dramatic value, I think, because we do have to deal with degrowth here in a rich country like Australia. And um, we're probably running a bit out of time now, but I guess I would like to ask the concluding question to sort of um, end the end the, um, the discussion on um, one of the things when it comes to fight, you know, when it comes to fighting for a socialist society. Um, one of the one of the things um, that you argue in terms of drawing on Kohei's work is, and I think it kind of brings a lot of these sort of ideas back together from my interpretation is. There's very much um, both you and Kohei, um, you know, argue against this kind of deterministic reading of Marxism that essentially claims that capitalism will inevitably destroy itself through its own contradictions. And why don't you think, yeah, why, what is your sort of argument for, for that? Well, I think, you know, the main argument is empirical. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, it might destroy itself, but in the process, destroy the livability of our planet. I mean, unfortunately, this is the prospect, which is like, you know, for, for, for people in our time, it's, it's right in front of our eyes. You know, we're not talking, we're not talking about like you know, some distant future. It's going to be within people's lifetimes unless something dramatic is done. So I think, I think that's, that's, that, that's the main reason. From a historical point of view, I think there's a, one of the interesting things is that you know, people like uh, Marx and his generation of of, of early socialists are living in a time of you know very rapid tra- change in Western Europe, and I think they were you know, that, that was the biggest example of social change that they had to work with to develop their socialist ideas. But as Corey Saito pointed out, in later in life. Mark's attention started to look beyond those countries, look look beyond Europe. You know, he had a less Eurocentric focus, and started to look at uh, pre-capitalist societies, which were uh, had strong communalist traditions um, in 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 other parts, uh, other than in, than than uh, Europe. So, um, and I think if if he had again the time to pursue that further, of course, he could have developed uh, another element of thought in his. I'm talking about Marx here, yeah, uh, in his writing, is that, you know, 
he famously wrote that uh, all history has been, you know, a struggle between classes, and then it, it seems to flow from that. When he's talking about capitalism, that the struggle between the, the capitalists and the workers, you know, will inevitably mean, um, you know, the, the capitalist system will come to this almighty crisis because of its own economic and uh, contradictions, and then uh, its grave diggers, uh, the working class, would take over, and then you'd, you'd, you'd they'd build a socialist. Uh, society, um, but of course, even in 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 the history that he had looked on and he had noted this, is that the outcome of any particular uh, class struggle is by no means predetermined. Uh, not only can one class win over the other, but you can also have the mutual uh, ruin of both classes. And in some ways, uh, this has been a feature of even relatively recent European history. So uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire, you know, after years and years of war with the so-called barbarian tribes from the north and from the south, um, resulted, if you like, you know, in a lot of mutual destruction. There was a period of uh, great uh, chaos from which eventually uh, the uh, the structures of feudalism uh, eventually started to, to take place. So, you know, it, it wouldn't. It certainly wouldn't be the first time in in, in history in this history in the narrow sense of since 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 the discovery of writing or history since the beginning of class society, which is only a few thousand years old. Really, um, is is that we have that we have seen you know a, a thing like this. So. And it might seem sort of a pessimistic uh, concept, but I mean, it's reality. You know, we have to deal with it. You know, uh, capitalism has unleashed powerful forces, so powerful that it can't control itself. Even rationality can't control it. Even the majority of scientists can't dampen the simultaneous enthusiasm for some capitalists to invest in renewable energy and others to keep digging up more gas and oil, right? This is the reality. This is what we are living through. This is what we are seeing uh, played out in lifetime before us. Um, uh, yeah, such such pessimism, that possibility has to be reconciled with, you know. Uh, but it can also be a spur to action, a spur for us to, to build, to unite the movements that are able to, to, to change society, make the changes that are absolutely necessary now. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Peter. Um, I think this has been a kind of very um, good kind of discussion. And yeah, for listeners who have been engaged by this kind of discussion, this is going to be part of um, Kohei Saito's keynote session towards the idea of degrowth communism at the Eco-Socialism 2023 Conference of World Beyond Capitalism, which is actually happening next weekend um, at um, on July 1st, July 2nd um, at the Victorian Trades Hall. But yeah, yeah thanks. Jackie, it's, it's going to be interesting It's because not only listening to Kohei Saito, but it's going to be able to participate in a very rich interaction between activists from Australia and from many countries in the global south who are part of that conference uh, to, to discuss these important ideas. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. All right. We're just listening. Um, we're just speaking to Peter Boyle. Um, I'll just go play a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 855 AM.
We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we are joined by Angela Carr, who is part of the Save Geelong West Library, and she joins us now. Good morning, Ange. Morning. Nice to be here. How is everyone? Yeah, we're good. Um, nice and warm here in the studio. <laughs> and we would love for you to tell us about the... Geelong City's uh, Council proposed cuts, <clears throat> excuse me, in the draft budget. Um, could you just give us a little bit of a, you know, for listeners who don't know what's happening uh, with the proposed cuts, um, because then we can lead on to a bit about the campaign to keep these libraries open. Yeah, sure. So at the a- April Council meeting, um, Geelong introduced their draft budget, which they all voted on. Um, and basically that budget outlined huge deficit to many of our really important local services, including the library. So we recently had a new library open, um, Barangabrook, sorry, um, Drysdale Library, and council did not fund the operational costs for that library to the key of um, $762,000. That wasn't included in the funding to the Regional Library Corporation. And there was also a further deficit of uh, $365,000 for the Armstrong Creek Library, which has now been pushed over into next year's budget. But there's also other, like, glaring um, budget cuts. So they're cutting about $50,000 to um, paid lifeguards on Ocean Grove beaches. So there'll be no paid lifeguards over summer, um, which we heard through budget submissions that, you know, this is a real um, detriment and it could cost lives um, for local tourists and locals. You know, we've had deaths on our beaches down here, so it's really serious stuff. They're also proposing to close our outdoor pool for six months of the year due to heating the pool. Um, there's so many things. They're introducing paid parking fees. They've they've cut 19 jobs from the community life portfolio, which um, affects women fleeing family violence, homelessness services, multicultural affairs, gender equity, They've um, sacked the social equity manager, the arts and culture manager. So they're basically just ripping the guts out of all the essential um, well-being and community life jobs across the region. Yeah, it sounds uh, like a pretty serious situation in Geelong right now. And I even heard that the council even stooped to blaming 
the libraries when they did threaten to to shut their doors and cut their hours, um, which was pretty disgraceful. Uh, would you be able to give us a bit of an update on where the campaign is right now? Yes, yeah, so we've garnered really strong community support. So we only started our campaign just over a month ago when the announcements were made that they were going going to close three libraries across the region. So Geelong West, Barwon Heads, Highton, and they were going to make Chilwell Library a um, self-service library, so an unstaffed library. Um, within a week, we had managed to put together a really large rally of which 500 people attended. And the day before that rally, um, the Geelong Regional Library Corporation announced that they would not close libraries. However, they were going to dramatically cut back hours to all the libraries across the region, totaling about 46 hours um, across the region. And so that was closing libraries on Sundays, closing them on Saturday afternoons and some some of the after hours stuff, which effectively means that families, working people wouldn't be able to access their libraries on the weekend. So... The campaign has been absolutely amazing. We have had rallies. The week after the um, council meeting, there was a protest at council meetings. So over 35 people submitted questions to council. And at that Tuesday night meeting, um, we were not allowed to ask our questions of council. Instead, they provided a blanket statement saying they'd received too many submissions to council but at that same meeting we had a chamber that had empty seats and council security and police actually barred residents from attending um, the meeting so that got pretty ugly we had council holding back elderly citizens that were trying to um, enter the chamber So after that time, um, Council did announce before our large rally that they're going to keep the libraries open. But it just, it's not good enough and we don't accept it. So we have groups across the region collecting, we have thousands of um, petition signatures. We have had people writing letters to the editor. We have had people slamming their local councillors um, with emails, phone calls, and we've had really um, huge media coverage on this issue. Yeah, um, it, that's, that, that all sounds really great. Um, and it sounds like a lot of hard work in this campaign. Well, just also, on just the question of libraries, um, why do you, well, would you be able to let us know, you know, I mean, I'm sure listeners um, tuning in understand why libraries are important, but, you know, sometimes we do need to think about why libraries are so important to people and why we do need to fight for them to stay open. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, the obvious um, first thing that people think about is the importance of early literacy for our children and young people because the council, um, the library services provide, you know, early learning programs, free access to books, um, you know, story time, baby time, all those types of things that are just so important in children's development. 
But what we also know is in the current cost of living crisis, libraries have never really been so important because a lot of people are using libraries now um, to access things like the internet because they can't afford that at home anymore. You know, people go to the library to do their life admin, to look for jobs, to do their banking. We have a lot of elderly people and homeless people that use our libraries you know, to seek a warm, heated space to charge their phones. And we also have, you know, um, a lot of people that are disconnected in society. So people go to libraries to seek connection with other people in their communities. And when we've been out campaigning time and time again, people have really highlighted that libraries are basically the heart and soul of our community. And down here in Geelong, we just feel like the council is just ripping the guts out of our community by making these terrible decisions. Angela, how can people get involved and support the Save Geelong West Library campaign? And and would you be able to tell us what are some of the different groups who are involved in the campaign as well? Yeah, sure. So we've we've merged in with, um, we're calling ourselves now the Combined Regional Library Action Group. So We've been working very closely with uh, the Friends of Barwon Heads Library Group, um, Save Heighton Library Group and Support Chilwell Library Group. So we have been having very regular meetings. And I did forget to mention earlier that we actually, after our rally, we did force the councillors to come to a community forum at Geelong West Town Hall to have our questions answered because when we were barred from asking our questions at that council meeting, it was just absolutely such an undemocratic um, action from the council. So we were able to force them to come to us, which was a really um, important part of our campaign, and it really bolstered, um, I guess, the sense of fight and feeling amongst the community. So... The next things we have coming up, um, we do have a rally coming up this Saturday. Um, So that's been put on by the Australian Services Union because they represent the workers um, at the council that are losing their jobs. So we're asking all library supporters to come along to that. Um, Please continue to contact, uh, you know, your local MPs, your councillors, Keep writing your letters to the editor. And then on Tuesday night at the council meeting, they're actually voting on this budget. So we're going to be there in force um, to hopefully, you know, um, we're going to be there telling them, show us the money. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, letting us know all that. And, And just before we wrap up this interview, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'd just probably really like to thank um, everyone in the community that's just come out and shown their support. So, you know, please continue to, you know, fight back against our council because we're seeing this council has been just really appalling for the last 10 years. So we just need to keep, um, you know, follow all the groups on Facebook and just keep in contact with us. Please reach out if you want to get more actively involved. Thanks, Ange, and we really keep, uh, we really hope that you keep up the fight against these these cuts. Oh, we will. <laughs> no question about it. Yeah. Thanks, Ange. And All right. 
for listeners just tuning in, we were joined by Angela Carr, who is part of the Save Geelong West Library. It's called the it's now called the Combined Regional Libraries Action Group, which is a community campaign against council cuts, and it's been quite significant with street rallies and protests at council meetings where police have barred residents' entry. Um, and there are lots of, you know, there are petitions and public meetings that are being organised and also a rally on Saturday. So, yeah, please support and get involved. Okay, so I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. And actually, we might play, before we go into our Green Left Actors calendar, we might play just a quick song to break things up a bit. And um, But, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. <laughs> 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And as I said, we thought we'd play a quick song before we go into the Green Left Activist Calendar and do, and then also do our final interview for the program. We're going to be playing um, live music every Sunday this week by Yiski Lightspeed um, Chamber.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 855am and that was you're just listening to live music every Sunday this week by Yiski Lights um, Speed Chamber and um, he's actually going to I'm pretty sure he's going to be one of the performers at the Green Left um, at the Green Left fundraiser that's going to be happening on Saturday night as part of the Eco Social 2023 conference yeah um, and just to mention to listeners that the radio is still on through CR. It ends on the 30th of June. So it's plenty of time to donate, but the sooner the better. And we'd like to um, just again thank all our supporters, everybody who pledged and donated money um, to our show. Um, really grateful. Uh, just a few more people to thank. Uh, really want to thank Jordan for his donation and also my mum and grandma for pledging money towards the Radiothon. And just on how you can donate... You can donate online at www.3cr.org.au slash donate. Uh, you can give and nominate your favourite show. You can call the station on 03-9419-8377 and donate um, using your credit card or debit card. Or you can go to give the GiveNow website, which is www.givenow.com.au um, slash Cause 442. I hope I got that right. Or you can even come into the station, drop by between 9 and 5 and pay by cash or FPOS at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. All right. So now it is actually time for the green left kind of activist kind of calendar. Um, so just, I'll be quite quick with this. Um, so tonight there's actually going to be an important kind of public forum, um, no to nuclear submarines. Um, it's going to be at 6 p.m. at the Shreds Hall at, um, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. Um, and then, um, then, and then on Saturday, June the 24th, um, there's going to be the Rock for Refugees at the Howler at 11 Dawson Street and it's organized by Refugee Action Collective. And then on, Tuesday and Wednesday, um, there's going to be, uh, well, I should have got more advertised one on Wednesday. On Wednesday, June the 28th, there's going to be a book launch with, by Anthony Lewinstein, um, to, um, for his new book, The Palace Laboratory, and that's going to be at the Re- Readings Bookshop at 309 Ligon Street in Carlton. Um, and then on from Saturday the 1st of July to Sunday the 2nd of July, um, there is the Eco Socialism 2023 conference, a world, um, a world beyond capitalism at the Shreds Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton. And you can book your tickets by going on the Eco Socialism website, ecosocialism.org.au. Um, and then on Saturday night, um, um, there's going to be July, fair, um, on, there's going to be Green Left's celebration of cultural descent, 6 p.m. at the Shreds Hall at the Loading Bay, and you'll get to hear from local activist musicians. Um, and then on Saturday, um, Friday, July the 7th, there's going to be the NADOC Rally in March at 10 a.m. at the Victorian, um, Victorian Aboriginal Health um, Services Centre in Nicholson Street in Fitzroy. It's actually quite close to um, FreeCR. And then on July, on Saturday, July the 15th, um, there's going to be the Community Rally, No Nuclear Submarines, Fund Essential Services and Real Client Action at 11 a.m. at the corner of Wilson Avenue and Sydney Road opposite Barclay Square in Brunswick. Um, and then actually one just last note, um, on Saturday as well, if you happen to be in the regional Victoria area, there's, as Angela Carr sort of mentioned, there's going to be a rally, Stop the Council Cuts, Australian Services Union, Geelong Trade Hall Council, Community Union Protest at 10am at the library, um, 153 
uh, a Packington Street, Geelong West, and it will involve a march to West Park. Okay, well, I'm just going to go play a quick few announcements. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe... The number is 94198377. You've been listening to the sand. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn were actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. You're back on Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we have Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne on the line. Welcome to the show, Nazanin. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on, and we we know that you've just launched your the mural that you painted as a tribute to Gina Armani and the Women Life Freedom Movement. Could you be able to give listeners uh, a description of the painting and you know, some of the other figures that are depicted in, in that in that mural? Yeah, so um, really happy to talk about it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, so we uh, painted this mural on the entrance of uh, Brunswick Bath's gym. Uh, so based on that location, we wanted to add a message of hope power and resistance and kind of like create an image that would help uh, the passerbyers, the gym users, uh, the community, everyone using this space uh, to both remember what happened to Gina Amini, what is happening to women in Iran, and also uh, get something from it to feel empowered. So the work depicts uh, an image of Gina Amini uh, next to her tombstone and uh, the sentence that her parents wrote on her first tombstone, which reads, Gina, dear, you didn't die, your name will be a rallying cry. That is basically the starting point of the mural. And then... This message is uh, taken through the rest of the landscape of the design, uh, which is symbolized by poppy flowers, which in Australia they symbolize blood of the martyrs. It's the same in Iran. Poppy flowers grow in uh, mountainous areas. They grow in uh, Kurdistan of Iran as well. And uh, that is the symbolism we have used uh, for uh, showing the blood of uh, many people. 
who have lost their lives uh, in this fight, in this revolution. And uh, with every life lost, with everyone injured, with everyone fighting, the message uh, is just getting carried stronger and stronger through. And uh, that uh, forms the chant of this revolution, Women, Life, Freedom, translation in Kurdish, Jenjian Azadi. And then after that, it gets carried through and we have uh, depictions of two female athletes, two Iranian female athletes, Elnaz Rakobi, rock climber, and Fatima Adeli, a footballist, who each of them used uh, the opportunity that they had during their competition uh, to show their resistance in their own way. Uh, you might know Elnaz Rakobi, uh, it was only about 18 days after that of uh, Gina Amini that she was competing in an international rock climbing competition in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, for all of the stages of the competition, she was wearing the uniform mandated uh, by Islamic Republic, which includes hijab. But for the finale, she showed up without wearing her hijab. Her hair was just tied up in a like a ponytail, and uh, just the video of her climbing this wall and uh, winning bronze medal on international stage went viral really quickly. It was like a moment of hope and uh, showing that women are moving away from this mandatory hijab, which was also at the same time that so many women inside of Iran were protesting without hijab. They were taking their scarves off. They were burning their headscarves. And uh, the other athlete, Fatima Adali, she was in Iran uh, competing against another local team. She was she's the captain of Isfahan Sepahan team. And uh, she kicked the winning goal. But instead of showing her happiness, which is usually what you see after footballers uh, win the game or like they kick an amazing goal, instead of showing that happiness and that joy, she covered her face. And in the picture that went viral from that scene, you can also see all of her other teammates that were just walking behind her. Nobody's showing happiness. They're just all tired and angry, and you could see, they, see it in their faces. And that was how she was able to communicate her message, that this is not ordinary situation. This is not uh, business as usual. This is not a normal time. We're going uh, through very painful time. And after her, many other footballers uh, also followed through and in different ways showed their resistance. It is a beautiful, colourful painting, Nazanin. It's quite emotional, but also very empowering, people fighting gender oppression. Can you tell us how you organised this painting by the community? I mean, how many people were involved in painting it, or, or who painted it? And just um, tell listeners where it's the street that it's located on. Yeah, so if you go to the, if you know where Brunswick Bass is, behind it, Phoenix Street, that's the entrance to the gym. So Phoenix Street uh, on Sydney Road, that's where you're going to find this mural. Uh, the background is this vibrant blue, and uh, we decided to have a very vibrant colors. That was actually a suggestion of uh, Zara, a Kurdish uh, woman who grew up in Brunswick, who joined our group uh, for this mural. And she told me that Brunswick is a happy place. There are like so many vibrant colors. People are dressed colorful. Uh, so we have to reflect that in the work. The original sketch that I had had really muted colors. Uh, so that uh, changed through this uh, community participation and people joining our work. 
Uh, we worked on it over a period of four days, and we had a total of uh, 34 people working on it. Uh, some of them are professional uh, portrait painters. Some of them are professional uh, graffiti artists, uh, street artists. And a lot of them were picking up a brush for the first time of kindergarten. So it was not a, like, you know, a professional artist coming in and uh, doing artwork uh, in the most efficient manner. Uh, that was not our intention. We wanted to create this space for the community, uh, for people who were impacted uh, by this revolution, who needed an outlet uh, to come and find a place, come and uh, find this platform uh, for sharing their message. And uh, we had Iranian artists, we had Kurdish artists, we had a couple of Chinese artists who joined us, uh, Australians, and uh, it was definitely a multicultural effort as well. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, you had it painting was, the, yeah. the mural. Can you give us a bit of an update on what has happened in these last eight months in Iran and where the new democratic revolution of the Iranian people is heading? Oh, God, you know, there's like a lot of up and downs, and uh, it is hard, honestly, at a, on a personal level uh, to keep up with the news mm. because... It's so much blood, it's so much devastation, uh, and that definitely affects your mental health. And uh, I myself am not following that closely with the news as much as I was maybe six, seven months ago. Uh, because, you know, it is just hard. And I do see that is happening for so many other people as well. But that doesn't mean that the fight is over, that doesn't mean that in Iran, People aren't uh, asking for change. They're creating that change themselves. Uh, the image of women not wearing hijab is just ordinary right now. Many people who have been in Iran recently, who've been traveling, the images that come out, the videos that come out, just girls not wearing hijab is ordinary now. At the same time, we're having hardliners and people who believe in this system who are taking it upon themselves to enforce that rule. So we are actually seeing more and more violence uh, towards women who are, uh, you know, choosing what to wear and making that choice for themselves. Uh, we also saw a horrible round of poisoning of schoolgirls in school uh, who were at the front line of the resistance. Uh, Gina Amini died, I think, maybe two weeks before the start of uh, school year. So when the schools opened, when the universities opened, uh, schoolgirls and people in university, they were the front line of resistance. They were taking their heads off, they were tearing up the pictures of Khomeini and Khomeini from their school books and using everything available to them to show the resistance and uh, Seven months later, what is happening? They're getting poisoned by poisonous gas. Nobody's taking responsibility. We're having uh, reports of when these attacks are happening. The school CCTV camera is out. Uh, the principals are not letting parents coming in and collecting their children. And that's all happening. And that news has died down right now because the school year is over. But there's no guarantee that uh, when the next school year comes around in three months, uh, those attacks 
will suffer continue. We don't know. He might. Uh, and Islamic Republic is definitely not sitting silent. They have executed about uh, more than 10 of the protesters who they have arrested and uh, convicted uh, for their made-up crimes uh, that they use in their legal system justifying their actions. Uh, and there are still many more protesters in prison who are who their lives are in danger. And uh, they are still putting pressure on the families of protesters who have died. Uh, just last week, two families uh, who their children have died, uh, not even during the protest, which is, uh, it happened, it, it's kind of like, it's surreal that uh, two families, their children, one, uh, Abul Faz Adinazade, he was 16. He got shot point blank, uh, point blank. He wasn't even in a protest. And another one, Kian Pirfa, like nine years old. Same situation. Uh, both of those families hold ceremonies at the cemetery for the birthday of their children. Both of the families were arrested. And uh, the news coming out is that they are asked for huge bond uh, for their release, uh, and uh, another one of the family members of Kian Pirfalek was also shot dead uh, during the struggle between the forces, between the police forces and their families. Uh, this is still happening. It's not over. Uh, I understand that keeping up with this news in the intensity that we were uh, seven, six months ago uh, is not possible for individuals. But uh, international media and representatives and uh, democratic uh, elected representatives of different countries, that's their job. They have resources to keep up with this news. They have resources to keep updated, to uh, do act, uh, to be on top of it and act accordingly and swiftly. Uh, so that's what they should do. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Nazanin. Before we wrap up the interview, can you please tell us about Feminist um, Melbourne and anything else you would like to add? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we basically kind of like started creating this group uh, because we needed a platform to organize our efforts. Most of us knew each other uh, from before the revolution, so just friends and neighbours uh, who knew each other. But then uh, we wanted to create a platform for more and more people to be able to join us, to uh find a space for the activism, a safe space, that they can protect their identity, that they can use the resources. Uh, so that's basically what the group's aim is. Uh, we found that art is, is really helping us uh, to communicate our message in a way that is also healing for ourselves at the same time. Uh, is a space for us to grieve, uh, share our pain, and communicate that in a way that we know. And uh, if you're interested in the work that we do, if you want to support us, please uh, follow us on Instagram, feminista, so feminista.melbourne. Uh, we want to do more. Uh, and uh, so far we have done uh, upwards of 10 public art installations, uh, almost three uh, performance pieces, and uh this uh, mural in Brunswick, uh, Bad Gym Entrance, is our first commissioned piece. It was commissioned by Meribek City Council. Uh, they were really amazing in supporting this work. Uh, but everything else we have done before this piece 
we had to self-fund and collect donations. Uh, so that really helps us when there is support, when there's people coming in and helping us on the day. And we are open to non-Farsi speakers. Uh, so, yeah, don't think that you have to be Iranian to be part of this. If this is a platform that you'd like to use, come and talk to us. Great. Thanks, Nazanin, for coming on the show. And Thank you any- so much. Yeah, anyone interested in feminist and community art and resistance will appreciate all the work you've done in getting that mural up. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks. And you were just hearing from Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne talking about a mural that she's painted as part of a collective, uh, Feminista Melbourne, and that was a tribute to Gina Amin, who was killed by the morality police in Iran last year and in solidarity with the Women Life Freedom Movement. Okay, um, so I wanted to kind of, um, we wanted to, that was a great interview and I guess I want to just finish um, up the program by actually just talking about the Green Left, um, that the Free CR Radiothon is still on um, and in fact I just made my $50 donation to the breakfast um, programs um, to the Oh, sorry. Oops, <laughs> I forgot to. Think. Um, and um, yeah, um, Freesia, um, we're still um, wanting to raise up to seven hundred and thirty-nine dollars for um, for the breakfast programs across uh, across from Monday breakfast, Tuesday breakfast, Wednesday breakfast, Thursday breakfast, and Green Left Radio. Um, and also, we obviously have a bigger a bigger target um, because we're kind of aiming for a target of two hundred and seventy-five. A hundred dollars, two hundred and seventy-five thousand. Oh, two hundred seventy-five thousand yeah. uh, across um, across the program, and I think you know um, across all the all the programs. So I think you know any any sort of donation that people can make um, helps. And um, yeah, I also want to go next um, Saturday and Sunday is uh, the Eco Socialism Twenty Twenty Three Conference, which um, myself and Chloe have actually been heavily involved in organising the conference. Um, there's going to be a whole range, as sort of Peter kind of said in the interview. This is actually going to be an opportunity to kind of network with, you know, lots of kind of different activists from the global south. We're going to be having activists from Malaysia, Singapore. Um, Malaysia, Singapore, Pakistan, and India um, all coming in person for the conference. And you also get to hear from activists in the Philippines, um, Japan, um, Myanmar, and also... Um, and also from um, from a Kurdish activist from, um, from, who are based in Germany. Yeah. Um, highly encourage people to, to attend the conference July 1st and July 2nd. It's next weekend. And it's... Uh, you know, also a fundraiser for Green Left. So please think about becoming a subscriber to Green Left. Um, Green Left aims to provide much-needed forum for discussion and debate around the changing world, and we try to we give voice to progressive ideas, link issues and campaigns and activists, and lets people know about how they can join with others to take action for change. So uh, head to greenleft.org.au/support. Um, it's a little, it's as little as five dollars a month. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for, for tuning in. Thanks and for tuning in. Thanks for our get um, to our guests as well for coming on the program. Nazanin from Feminist Melbourne, and Angela Carr from Geelong, and also Peter Boyle. Yeah. And so yeah, stay tuned for next week. And yeah, I'll be um, and you can listen to this program again by going on to the FreeCR website and when it's um, when the podcast is uploaded. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and stay tuned for Left After Breakfast. 
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.